Our guest today is someone we've been meaning to bring back on the program for quite some time. Author and former Washington Post reporter Jefferson Morley has, for many years, looked into some of the strange events surrounding accused presidential assassin Lee Harvey Oswald, among many other things. Mr. Morley has written a compelling book about CIA's Mexico City station chief who was in charge back in September of 63 when Lee Oswald showed up and visited the embassies of the Soviet Union and Cuba. The book is Our Man in Mexico, Winston Scott and the Hidden History of the CIA. This story of the CIA spy chief in Mexico and the visit of Lee Oswald to his turf has some twists that we're keen to discuss. Jefferson Morley is currently the moderator of the excellent website jfkfacts.org. We highly recommend that you check out the articles found there. In addition to his reporting about the JFK case, Jeff Morley has become a participant of sorts. He was the plaintiff in the lawsuit Morley versus CIA, which attempted to secure the release of long-secret JFK records. We're delighted to be able to say welcome back to Radio Parallax, Jefferson Morley. Thank you, Doug. It's great to be here. I want to start out by noting that Our Man in Mexico is, is really one of the best books written in the JFK case, even if you approach the subject somewhat indirectly. Can we talk a little bit about who Winston Scott was and who he was connected with, because he, he was one of the old boys of the Old Boy Network? Well, that's what attracted me uh, about it. Um, about uh, uh, 15 uh, years ago, um, a friend of mine came to me and said he had a client with an amazing story, and I, and I should write a story about it. And that was the son of Winston Scott, Michael Scott. And Michael Scott, uh, who's a filmmaker in Los Angeles, shared with me the story of his father. And you're right, Win Scott was one of the founding personalities of the CIA. And that's what really interested me was he was comparable in the early days of the CIA to very well-known figures like uh, Richard Helms and James Angleton and Bill Harvey, uh, the, the people who, who, who books have been written about, and yet nobody had ever written a book about Scott. And so that's what drew me to him. And then also that he had this very interesting role in the JFK assassination um, in 1963. Scott served as the station chief in Mexico City for, for 13 years, which is an unprecedented reign for a station chief uh, in the history of the CIA. I don't think anybody's served in one job for that long um, except for him. So he was a remarkable character in, the, in terms of the history of the CIA. I decided early on, though, that I was not going to write a book about the Kennedy assassination. Um, uh, I felt like uh, there have been so many books about that, and there's so many imponderable and disputed questions that it was very difficult to construct a narrative around that, whereas Wynne Scott was a remarkable character, a very interesting man, a, 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 a complex um, and rich personal life, married three times, um, had a family. Um, and so I decided I would simply tell his story rather than try and go into the JFK morass. Um, and so, yes, I do approach the story of the JFK assassination somewhat indirectly, but by looking at November 22, 1963, through the eyes of a top CIA officer, I think I, I, I kind of got a fresh perspective on the events. I wasn't trying to decipher the eternal question of who killed Kennedy, but rather to understand what did this event look like through the eyes of somebody who was very well-placed and very loyal to the CIA, you know, um, somebody who, who represented the institution's thinking and traditions and personality in every way. And so um, I think that that's really what our man in Mexico does. It doesn't present my theory of the assassination, um, uh, which, you know, 
I, after a while, I, I came to think, you know, who cares? What matters is what Win Scott thought. He was, he was there. I wasn't. Yeah. And so, um, and so uh, the heart of the book is uh, the JFK assassination, or at least, you know, probably four or five chapters in the middle of the book cover the events from 1962 to 1964. Um, and in very close detail, we see uh, in the book what the visit of Lee Harvey Oswald to Mexico looked like to Win Scott, who had him under surveillance when he came there. That was Scott's job. Um, and then, you know, what did that mean when this man had been arrested for shooting and killing the president? So Scott was there before the assassination. He was part of the story, and then he was also there afterwards and part of the investigation and the, and the, and the, and the confusing and very secretive aftermath of the assassination. So. That's what the story of Win Scott really tells us, and I think you're right. It does give us a unique window into the assassination of JFK. Well, I hate to do this, Jeff, at this point, but I think a little slight detour in our, very, in our second question here would be um, probably worth our while to, to explain to our listeners a little bit of uh, extra background here. Uh, before he turned up in Mexico in, in fall of 63, Oswald had gotten into some very public conflicts with an anti-Castro group in New Orleans. The DRE, and I just want to give you a little bit of background on that group because it's going to it's going to surface again in the narrative. As part of my interest, what drew me to Win Scott was the, was the larger question of what did the CIA know about Oswald and when did they know it, and it, to understand all of the personalities and, and 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 the structure and the functioning of the CIA. And so, Win Scott figures in the events of October 1963. But you're right, two months before. Oswald gets into a very um, series of very publicized encounters with an anti-Castro group in New Orleans. And what I found out when I began to look into that incident was that the group, Oswald's antagonists among the anti-Castro exiles, had in fact been funded by the CIA. And they were members of a very prominent and, uh, and influential uh, anti-Castro organization called the Cuban Student Directorate, or the Directorio Revolucionario Estudantil, DRE, which was consisted of students from the University of Havana who had taken up arms against the Castro government as it turned towards one-party socialism in the early 1960s, and the CIA funded this group. So I thought it was very interesting that Oswald, when he gets into these encounters um, in, in New Orleans, has again stumbled into, uncannily, a CIA-funded operation. A separate track of my reporting has been to try and explain that and, and find out more about how that worked and, and, and why that came to pass. So that's what eventually led me to my lawsuit, which I filed against the CIA 10 years ago, unbelievably, seeking the records of a undercover CIA officer named George Joannides. And George Joannides was the case officer for the Cuban Student Directorate. He was the agency officer who handled the contacts with this group, passed them money on the one hand, and then also received intelligence um, and information from the members of this group. So I have trying to figure out <clears throat> what did George Joannides think about these encounters between Oswald and the anti-Castro students. So that's been another kind of line of inquiry for my reporting. I haven't written a book about it, not, at least not yet, but that's what I'm trying to get at, is trying to understand those events as well, to put in the bigger picture what was going on with the CIA and Oswald before Kennedy was killed. 
Well, these threads, starting with uh, with Winston Scott and also with George Joannides, I think can be reunited in the person of, of yet another uh, individual. He worked under Win Scott. He kind of ran the covert operations, apparently. He was a very capable spy in his own right. His name was David Phillips, and he plays a big role in the story. Can you tell us about him? David Phillips exactly is the connective tissue. David Phillips was a, a very charismatic and clever covert operator, um, made a name for himself in the CIA coup in Guatemala in 1954, played a prominent role in the CIA-sponsored uh, invasion at the Bay of Pigs in 1961, and in 1963 is running anti-Castro operations out of Mexico City. So when Oswald came to uh, Mexico City, Phillips was one of the people who picked up on him, and Wynn Scott and David Phillips talked about who Oswald was and what should, what should their response be. So Phillips was one of those CIA people who knew about <coughs> Oswald before the assassination. He also perhaps coincidentally or perhaps not, in his job as running anti-cash operations, was effectively the supervisor of George Joannides. If we can picture the hierarchy of the CIA, David Phillips is running anti-cash operations from Mexico City, and George Joannides, stationed in Miami, is um, a, an underling of his. Not, he was not a senior officer in the same way Phillips was. Joannides was more a, a, a man in the field who responded to the directions of his superiors. So David Phillips connects the two strands of this story in terms of Oswald's contacts with the CIA before the assassination. Well, after Oswald makes a visit down to Mexico City, about which much has been written, Wynn Scott asks for information about this young man, and the data they get back from headquarters appears to be deliberately misleading. They don't provide a photo, for example. And you point out in the book that the data that went to headquarters from Mexico was widely circulated among the top people in the agency. And, and both these aspects beg for explanations, which uh, we still don't have. The story gets more interesting when Wynn Scott picks up on Oswald and is um, asked for more information about him and, and is told uh, a fair amount about him. The CIA had a big file on Oswald, and they knew a lot about him. They knew he'd been in the Soviet Union. They knew he'd married a Russian woman. They knew he had returned. They knew that he had been in the fight with the anti-Castro students in New Orleans. But that was one thing that they didn't tell Wynn Scott, and that, I think, is very significant. There was something about those encounters in New Orleans that uh, the CIA hierarchy, the brass in Langley, chose not to share with Wynn Scott. And in, in my book, I came to the conclusion that Wynn Scott had been sort of deliberately left out of the loop on Oswald. There were people in, in headquarters who knew a lot about Oswald, and they did not share all they knew with their colleague in Mexico City. And I think that's one place where we begin to see um, the breakdown of presidential security that occurs in Dealey Plaza. If Wynn Scott had known about uh, Oswald in New Orleans, I think he, he would have made a big deal about it, and he would have demanded some more answers, and he would have followed up to find out more about what Oswald was up to. Wynn Scott was that kind of guy. He was an aggressive cold warrior, and he would go after and had a voracious appetite for information about people who he perceived as a security threat. And he surely would have perceived Oswald as a security threat if he had known that he'd been fighting with members of a CIA-funded group in New Orleans. So Wynn Scott was kind of left in the dark, and I think that's a significant event. And at the same time, as you say, the issue of Oswald in Mexico City is, is raised to the highest levels of the clandestine service. 
And on October 10th, 1963, a group of uh, senior officers get together and, and, and compose that cable to Winscott, which provides a lot of information about Oswald, but not all the information that they have. And so decisions are being made about Oswald at the top of the CIA in October 1963, just, you know, six weeks before Kennedy is killed. That's a very significant event. And I talk a lot about that on jfkfacts.org because I think that's really the heart of the mystery is how did information about this guy Oswald get to the top of the CIA? His file is reviewed. People think about him. They talk about him. They assess him and basically don't, don't raise any security concerns about him at all. Six weeks later, the president is killed, and this whole incident has to be buried. And it is buried. And nobody really knew about it, um, at least not in the kind of detail that I was able to write about it in Our Man in Mexico, you know, for 30, 35 years. So the veil of secrecy around these events is also, you know, part of the story. Something was going on here, something very sensitive, um, and something that the agency did not care to disclose to any investigators of the assassination. We can see the outlines of a very significant story here. Now, that's not the same as saying we have an explanation. The CIA doesn't want to talk about it, doesn't answer questions about it, has been pretty unresponsive, even under the threat of litigation and the lawsuit that I filed against them. They're still maintaining a tremendous amount of secrecy around these events. So the challenge is to kind of pierce that veil and figure out what was going on with Oswald and the CIA before JFK was killed. We're speaking with reporter and author Jefferson Morley, largely about his book, Our Man in Mexico, Winston Scott and the Hidden History of the CIA. Uh, Jeff, with the point here that I think this story really gets uh, truly interesting. JFK gets assassinated, and of course Oswald then is under intense scrutiny by the world. No less than J. Edgar Hoover would complain that the truth about his recent visit to Mexico was being withheld by the CIA. Winston Scott does send what photos and tapes they have to Dallas, and in what to me has always been one of the most jaw-dropping aspects of the case, they take a look at the, what photos they have in tapes and say, well, this is not the man we have in custody, which is rather astonishing. Right. The official story is that that was a mistake, that they weren't certain who the person they had a picture of was, and they were just guessing that it was Oswald. Knowing how uh, uh, the CIA operates, that explanation is possible but hard to credit. That does not seem like it was an accident. That's one of the, you know, the unexplained things. The larger point that you're absolutely right about is the CIA begins to pull all of this information in and hold it very closely and not share it, not even with the FBI, not even with J. Edgar Hoover. And Hoover senses this right away and is very angry because he feels that the blame for the assassination may come to fall on him or on the FBI. So the assassination of the president creates tremendous pressure within these, uh, the FBI and the CIA to cover up and to hide all that had been known about Oswald while JFK was still alive. There's many theories about what happened uh regarding JFK's assassination, and many people think there's, you know, a conspiracy involved. It turns out the very first proposal that this was a conspiracy comes, oddly enough, from the DRE, whom we talked about earlier. Um, the Oswald was portrayed as a communist hired assassin and linked to Fidel Castro, and this took place during the weekend of, of, the, of the assassination. 
George Joannidis' allies in the DRE um, are, have encountered Oswald. They've publicized his pro-Castro ways. They've denounced him on the radio, on TV, and in print. They've issued a press release about him, all about this thoroughly obscure guy. Well, when this thoroughly obscure guy is arrested for killing the president three months later, the leaders of the DRE have a lot of information about him and have a world historic scoop on their hands. And so they immediately start calling reporters and saying, we know who killed the president. It was a Castro supporter. Uh, that was all true. They, they had run into Oswald and all of that. What, what the reporters didn't know and what the Warren Commission didn't know was that the DRE was an instrument of the CIA and responsive to its money and its control through the person of George Joannidis. And so they are the first to say um, that uh, the assassination was the work of, uh, of Fidel Castro and, and Lee Harvey Oswald. And so that is the first JFK conspiracy to reach print, as far as I can tell. And it, and it happens within about 24 hours of the assassination when the DRE puts out a publication that has the headline, The Presumed Assassins, over a picture of Oswald and Castro. So there's your conspiratorial scenario. Castro was responsible. And it's paid for by the CIA within 24 hours of the assassination. That, I think, is also a remarkable story that's not been fully explained. When I sued for the records of Joannides, the heart of what I was trying to figure out was, so what did this CIA officer think about this? His allies in this group, his protégés, with whom he was very sympathetic and supportive, had contact with the man who apparently killed Kennedy. Did he think it was a conspiracy, or did he think Oswald was a lone nut, or what did he think? And that's what I was trying to figure out through my lawsuit. I mean, we haven't, thanks to CIA obfuscation, we haven't gotten any uh, a lot clearer answers to that question, but it's, it's clearly a very sensitive question still for the CIA, and uh, the lawsuit has proven that beyond, beyond a reasonable doubt, for sure. Well, another sensitive issue we should probably just bring to the light of day, because maybe people have not heard about this one, um, is that Dave Phillips, Winston Scott's right-hand man, the covert ops guy, apparently very quickly after the assassination comes up with another witness who incriminates Oswald directly, says, yes, I saw him accept money at the Cuban embassy. Winscott asked the Mexican authorities to, to grill this witness, and that story winds up falling apart. But it's, it's very, very odd. Uh, yeah, Dave Phillips um, vouched for that witness, um, a man named Gustavo Alvarez, who was, uh, had become an informant for the CIA in Nicaragua. And when he came forward with that story um, and approached the U.S. Embassy, the embassy referred him to the CIA, and the CIA gave him a look, and it was Dave Phillips who said, I, I think this guy's credible. So that story um, came to the fore um, thanks to Dave Phillips. And that story was very alarming to both Hoover and Johnson. The idea that um, there was a report that Oswald had taken money from the Cubans, you know, implied that Oswald was acting at the behest of the Cubans and that, you know, this might require or justify or raise the specter of U.S. retaliation against Cuba for killing the president and the threat of war with Cuba. At a time when the Cuban Missile Crisis was only a year in the past, um, a very frightening event in which the world came close to nuclear war, probably closer than it ever has at any time. The idea that, that Castro and Cuba might have been involved in the Kennedy assassination was very alarming. But we see that those reports are actually 
originating with CIA assets in Miami with the DRE and in Mexico City with uh, Phillips's asset, Gustavo Alvarez. So that's striking that that story is emanating from CIA-influenced sources within hours and days of Kennedy's assassination. It's a curious thing. I, I also want to ask you about some work you did with military intelligence analyst John Newman, asking about some of these memos that were going back and forth. You guys sort of thought perhaps that there might be some evidence of counterintelligence people, James Angleton and some of his deputies maybe be involved in something uh, to do with this. And we do know that when Winscott did pass away, Angleton does show up to clean out his safe, and Michael Scott and others uh, were very curious about what was in that safe, which uh, by some accounts may have actually included photos of the real Oswald in Mexico. I came to the conclusion that there were probably photos and tapes of Oswald in Winscott's safe um, that were seized. But, yeah, just to go back, early on, I joined up with John Newman, who had been a Army, career Army intelligence officer in my research and uh, learned a tremendous amount from him about how intelligence, U.S. intelligence agencies really function and, and not in the Hollywood JFK <laughs> conspiracy theme of things where mysterious CIA men go fly around the world and do strange things. That's really a false image of the CIA. The CIA is a government bureaucracy governed by rules, um, uh, traditions, practices that can be understood. They're not not readily shared with outsiders, but um, if you do research, you can begin to understand how they worked at that time. And I learned a tremendous amount from John. And in our work, we came to, to focus especially on the role of the counterintelligence staff of the CIA. They were involved in all of these incidents where Oswald makes contact with CIA assets. The counterintelligence staff, as run by James Angleton, was the, the entity within the CIA which controlled access to Oswald's file. And understand, as a bureaucracy, the CIA is governed by strict rules, and it wasn't like anybody could just walk in and see Lee Harvey Oswald's file before the Kennedy assassination. That was a very closely held file, and it was held by the counterintelligence staff. So when, when Scott asks CIA headquarters about Oswald, the question is referred to the counterintelligence staff. So it's clear from looking at the record that um, in the CIA's pre-assassination knowledge of Oswald, the counterintelligence staff is central. The people working for Angleton are the people who know the most about Oswald in the weeks before Kennedy is killed. Jeff, I want to close with uh, the fact that, luckily for me, I was at Duquesne University last month and was able to hear your talk about how much relevant material is out there and how much should still be released. And I thought we should uh, spend a little time at the end here to talk about what is out there and what it is you'd most like to see um, in the public domain. There's two things. One, I have sued for the records of George Joannides. In the course of that litigation, the CIA has acknowledged holding uh, 295 documents about Joannides' career that they say cannot be released in any form. Of those 295 documents, about 50 concern Joannides' actions in 1963 when he was running the DRE, and in 1978 when he was called out of retirement to serve as the CIA's liaison with congressional investigators who have reopened the JFK case. So Joannides has two appearances in the JFK story, and those files from those years, I think, are some of the things that I would most like to see because they would shed light on what he knew about Oswald and when he knew it. 
There's also, we now know, 1,100 CIA documents concerning related to the assassination that have been withheld in their entirety and will not be released until 2017 at the least. The CIA says that those documents are not believed relevant to the assassination, and I, I don't doubt that that is in large part true. A lot of those documents probably do not have any direct relevance to the assassination, but a small group of them do. And so, for example, there's 600 pages of operational files from David Phillips that have never seen the light of day. There's um, a couple hundred pages on Anne Goodpasture, who was a woman who worked for Winscott in Mexico City. There's a couple hundred pages on Howard Hunt, CIA officer based in Miami in the early 1960s. And Hunt, as you may know, made some sort of murky statements, possibly implicating himself in the JFK story at the end of his life. So I would guess that there is at least 3,000 pages of material on different personalities in the CIA who figure in the JFK story in one way or another that have never seen the light of day. And again, I would say out of those, you know, I would say some of them may not be relevant to the assassination at all, but I think that some of them probably do shed light on the nature of CIA operations around Oswald um, in between 1959 and 1963. And I think that information could clarify the story of the assassination force and, and, and might even prov provide some decisive clarification. I yeah. think that one thing that we may be looking at when we ponder this mystery, what's going on here, is a covert operation involving Oswald that has never been disclosed before. In other words, that someone among these CIA officers in anti-Castro operations or in counterintelligence operations had selected Oswald for some kind of intelligence operation, perhaps discrediting the pro-Castro movement in the United States or infiltrating the pro-Castro movement, and that once Oswald was arrested for killing the president, the CIA decided this could never be made public. You know, I think that's a possibility there. And, you know, if I'm wrong, I, and I, I'd be glad to be proven wrong. Either way, the CIA should release the information and we'll know if there's something incriminating there or if, if it's all exculpatory. But either way, we should get those records 50 years later. There's no real serious national security information in these files. This information might be embarrassing to the CIA, but it doesn't pose any threat to the safety of the American people now. This is 50 years ago uh, involving... Cuba, a country that doesn't threaten the United States, and the Soviet Union, a country that doesn't exist anymore. So there's really no reason for the CIA to be hanging on to this material. I say this extraordinary secrecy that still surrounds these CIA officers, all of whom are now deceased, by the way. To me, it seems absurd. And if it's not absurd, then it's very sinister. So either way, the CIA should release this material right away. Well, this is a good place to end it, but I, I can't resist tacking on one addendum to what I, with the question I just asked you about people who you'd like to see uh, documents released on, because I know you have previously stated that William Harvey was someone you're very curious to find documents about, and I just want to just throw his name out there and just have you just kind of give people a little bit of illumination of who he was. Bill Harvey was a, was a very important personality in the early days of the CIA, um, a, a, a longtime colleague of Wynne Scott's, and and it's significant in the JFK story for two reasons. One, when the CIA wanted to create a capacity for assassination, 
1960, they turned to Bill Harvey and put him in charge of it. I mean, he was known as a guy who could get things like that done. He was a very efficient uh, uh, officer, um, incredible energy, uh, phenomenal memory, uh, tremendous capacity for espionage, including uh, assassination. So that's one thing. And the second thing is, by 1963, his open contempt for President Kennedy and his brother, you know, cost him his job in the CIA. Harvey was demoted in mid-1963 precisely because the, the Kennedy brothers had had enough of him and his um, vociferous and unsparing criticism of their policies. And so Harvey is another one of these people who there's 123 pages of, a, of an operational file of Bill Harvey that remains secret. So he is a key figure in this whole story, and you know we still don't have full disclosure around his activities. We've been speaking with reporter and author Jefferson Morley, largely about his book, Our Man in Mexico, Winston Scott and the Hidden History of the CIA. I do want to plug before we go again that you're moderating the, the site jfkfacts.org, which, which I think everyone listening needs to check out. It's just a great site, and if they don't like that site, you refer to all the other sites out there people can check out. So there's a lot of data. Yes. Well, Jeff, thanks for speaking with us again, and I hope that we can bring you on in the future maybe talk about some new documents as they come out. Thank you for having me, Doug. It's a pleasure. You've been listening to a reprise edition of Radio Parallax. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. We will see you next week at the same time with some fresh material.